Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyperpartisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. This is Amina Keshton Kamal, and you're listening to Legal Ease Podcast in partnership with ASU Law's Academy for Justice. This episode is on Maricopa County Attorney Election in Arizona, and this episode's host is Eric Luna. Eric Luna is the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law at ASU's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. He is also the faculty director of the Academy for Justice, a diverse team of scholars and experts committed to the study and improvement of criminal justice in America. This is one of two episodes where we interview each of the Maricopa County attorney candidates on their stances on criminal justice reform topics. In this episode, we interview Julie Gunnigal. Eric, I'll be handing this over to you now to introduce our guest today, followed with questions. Thank you, Amina. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce the 2020 Democratic candidate for Maricopa County attorney, Julie Gunnigal. Ms. Gunnigal was born and raised in Maricopa County, after uh, receiving her law degree from the University of Notre Dame, Ms. Gunnigal served as Assistant State's Attorney in Cook County, Illinois, where she prosecuted financial crimes and public corruption. A mother of three, Ms. Gunnigal is currently a sole practitioner here in Maricopa County. Julie Gunnigal, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Could you tell us why did you want to become a prosecutor? What in your background and experience led you to pursue the position of county attorney? Sure. So my story starts with the fact that I'm the daughter of a proud public school teacher who taught in Arizona classrooms for over 25 years. And I was quite literally raised inside of our classrooms. And it was my mother who gave me a heart for public service. That being said, you know, my path took a different direction. I went to Northern Arizona University, go Jacks. I know this is an ASU based podcast, but nevertheless, uh, I got a degree in chemistry there, where I worked for Professor Weta, and I'm not sure if anybody, you know, remembers his amazing legacy. He was one of the longest-serving senators in Arizona, and one of the things that he told me was that while chemistry was a wonderful, you know, talent and service to the community, that there were other ways to serve. And from there, uh, you know, he inspired me to go to law school. And at that point in time, I was able to serve the people of Indiana. Uh, primarily prosecuting violent crimes, uh, crimes of domestic violence, crimes of child-on-child sexual assault. And from there, my path led to the county state's attorney's office, where it was my honor to serve the people prosecuting public corruption. And when I was there, I learned, you know, how much meaning and purpose that kind of work has, because our democracy doesn't work unless we keep everybody honest. So public corruption is one of the reasons why I'm running for, for this role. And ended up being one of the highlights of my career as an attorney. The United States is currently engaged in a, a national reckoning on race and criminal justice. 
Uh, many citizens believe that the criminal justice system is biased against people of color, that they are arrested more frequently than their white counterparts, that once arrested, they are prosecuted more frequently, and that once convicted, they are sentenced more harshly. What steps will your office take to assess racial disparities in the criminal justice system and to address the concerns of minority communities? Sure, let's start with the fact that the people who are voicing these concerns are right. 87% of people believe that our current criminal justice system is biased against people of color. Our statistics confirm this. In fact, the Arizona Republic just published a piece that shows that law enforcement is disproportionately more likely to use force against Black, Indigenous, and people of color. So we need to eliminate the two-tier system of justice, and we need to have that, that reckoning. And I think it has to come from the county attorney's office because our county attorney uh, and our law enforcement here are some of the worst racial disparities in the entire country. In my view, the, how we get there is through radical data transparency. So those jurisdictions who have most efficiently been able to rectify these long-standing, decades-old problems have done so by releasing all of their data, not only who they're charging, who is arrested, but what the plea offers are. And then from there, they're able to be introspective about that data. So for example, uh, one of the models that I'm interested in pursuing as county attorney is the Vera Institute for Justice uh, Prosecutor's Guide to Racial Equity. And what that does and what other jurisdictions have done that have implemented it They've been able to go and really do a deep dive as to why those racial disparities exist. One example is that a jurisdiction that was engaging in this introspection found that people of color were serving longer sentences for drug crimes because prosecutors were tacking on a paraphernalia charge nearly every single time a person of color was charged. And having that data point uh, allowed them to make policy that stopped that racial disparity. Incidentally, the, the same is true when it comes to crimes involving victims, that oftentimes the prosecutor's office don't serve in an equal way uh, when it comes to victims who are people of color. And that needs to change as well. So that same office found that, for example, when a violent crime was alleged and the complainant was, was a black person, that a white prosecutor was not likely to charge the accused. And I think that when we engage in that level of radical data transparency, that's never been done in this office before, incidentally. This office has fought tooth and nail to not reveal the numbers behind prosecution. That's how we're going to get at many of these problems. A follow-up to that. Um, in the wake of the death of, of George Floyd and others, uh, public protests have focused on the police use of force, uh, particularly lethal force. How would you instruct your office to handle potential prosecutions of law enforcement officers for conduct in the line of duty, such as the unlawful use of lethal force? Does your approach to prosecuting law enforcement officers provide any role for community member input, either before or after prosecution decisions are made? This is such a good question. And let me be clear at the outset, no one is above the law. And that includes law enforcement, that includes politicians in our state. And one of the core policy platforms that we have advocated for from day one is an independent and community involved prosecutorial bureau for police use of force cases. 
This is because having worked as a prosecutor, I've seen firsthand the close relationship that prosecutors have with law enforcement. And it's a relationship of necessity. Day in and day out, prosecutors will have to rely on law enforcement to prove up their cases. And oftentimes that results in relationships, sometimes even as close as marriage. And in my view, that presents a real conflict of interest that we would ever ask those same prosecutors to turn around and prosecute a police officer, um, knowing that those close relationships exist. So that's why we need independence. In my view, independence includes not only having experienced prosecutors who have held police accountable in the past, but also having the input of civil rights attorneys and the defense bar in helping make those decisions and then making those decisions as transparently as possible. And that's the community involvement piece because there's very little trust that this office will handle those sorts of cases and will we'll do so with transparency. So we need to make sure that the community knows what's happening and knows how the decisions are made. Recent uh, news coverage has highlighted uh, statewide problems in the disclosure of past misconduct by law enforcement officers on so-called Brady lists. Uh, the listed officers have documented integrity concerns such as past crimes, dishonesty on the job, or other misconduct. Supporters of these lists argue that the information is critical in the many instances where police testimony underpins the prosecution's case. Opponents claim that the list become a sort of scarlet letter for officers who don't have the means to clear their names. What is your position on Brady lists? What will your office do to ensure these lists are up to date and shared with other counties and the relevant information is made available to defense counsel? So I know that uh, you use the word opponent. I know that my opponent has routinely dodged this question. This has been part of my platform on transparency and accountability from day one. I believe that transparency and accountability means including Brady lists, making those Brady lists publicly available and holding law enforcement accountable when they are unethical or they break the law. And I've already been in contact with county attorney-elect Laura Conover, and we are committed to data sharing across county lines. That data sharing will end up keeping our our community safe, they will help law enforcement conduct their investigations ethically, and they'll help build trust in the community, which is really the gap that we are seeing. The county attorney's office should have made these lists public years ago, instead of having ABC 15 having to form them and make their own comprehensive Brady lists from, from press and other sources. I think we need to also think one step ahead of that, because as you know, the obligations and the promise of, of Brady and the, the Supreme Court ruling includes being able to turn over that material to the defense so that they have an opportunity to cross-examine law enforcement. But I think that there are times when misconduct might be so pervasive or severe that it places that entire officer's credibility at risk. And one of the things that I've been promoting as well, whether or not we need a no-call list. In my view, you know, we have doctors, uh, attorneys, we have other professionals that have a set standard that they have to adhere to in order to maintain their licenses in their respective fields. And in my view, I don't see any reason why holding law enforcement to that same high standard should be any different. There has been a, a movement to eliminate or at least limit cash bail uh, based on concerns that uh, people may remain in jail for trial, not because of the risk they pose, but because they cannot pay bail. 
Relatedly, some systems have turned to risk assessment tools to help determine those who can be released without threatening public safety or compromising efforts to prosecute cases. What is your position on these and other changes to bail? We need to eliminate cash bail, period, in the sentence. The cash bail system, as, as you rightly point, point out, it criminalizes poverty. And one of the things that prosecutors can do is they can stop asking for cash bail. We know that when an individual cannot post bail, that means that us, the taxpayers, are, are paying to house that individual. But we also know the real effects and harm that does on the, the person's life. We know that at one day, they're likely to lose their job. At several weeks, they're likely to lose their housing. At months, they lose their family. This destabilizes communities. This leads to broken homes. This drives communities apart. And studies have shown that it actually drives up crime. So I agree with you that there are cases where individuals are a flight risk or where they're a risk to the community. And we can ask a judge to hold that person based on those indications rather than merely asking for unattainable cash bail that we know that the person will never be able to post. I think it's a really interesting question about risk assessment because I think we need to be careful there that we're not just replicating the same sort of broken system and implicit biases that are already built in. And when we talk about risk assessment, making sure that uh, it's a transparent risk assessment tool. But we are able to keep our community safe. We are able to break the cycle of poverty. And I think ending cash bail is a big part of that. Let me turn to a somewhat related question on detention. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has had an impact on the criminal justice system, just like all other areas of, of American life. Among other things, the pandemic has raised concerns about the health and safety of those in jails and prisons. Given the incidence of COVID-19 cases in Arizona detention facilities, what is your view on the release of pretrial detainees and inmates who are particularly vulnerable to the disease? Incarceration during a pandemic should not be a death sentence. Our system is underfunded and we are over-incarcerated. Prisons are hotspots for COVID because incarcerated people do not have access to PPE or the ability to social distance. We need to acknowledge that this also puts our corrections officers at risk. And I view it as a shame that Director Shin has made himself unavailable to the media during this time and has failed to create any plan to address this ongoing crisis in our prisons. So does the prosecutor have a role here in advocating for safety in our prisons? And if that means release, uh, absolutely yes. The people in our community who are concerned about this issue have been called activists and opportunists. And I think that's wrong. We know that people who have loved ones in our system aren't activists and opportunists merely for asking for a baseline of safety for people who are incarcerated. Jurisdictions across the nation continue to deliberate on the legal status of marijuana. This November, recreational marijuana will be on the ballot in Arizona. What is your position on the legalization of recreational marijuana? Alternatively, do you support or oppose decriminalizing low-level drug offenses or reducing nonviolent drug crimes from felonies to misdemeanors? Sure. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. I am in favor of passing Prop 207, the Smart and Safe Act, which would rec make recreational marijuana legal. 
what this proposition gets right is expungements for thousands of folks who have been convicted for marijuana-related offenses. One of the things we have to acknowledge is that Arizona is alone in the nation when it comes to making marijuana a felony. We are the very last state to make everything from residue to several pounds a felony. And what that has done, uh, coupled with the fact that we do not have a functioning expungement system here in our state, is that individuals who have passed convictions don't get that real second chance. So I have been a staunch proponent of ending the prosecution of low-level personal use marijuana offenses. I have been since day one. I also believe that when it comes to other low-level drug offenses, we need to use treatment as a first, second, and third line of defense. We know that providing folks with treatment is far more effective for recidivism. We know that it's far more humane, and we know that it saves the taxpayers money. So when we are spending these millions of dollars a year to incarcerate individuals for possession and that we're continuing it to this day under the current leadership in the county attorney's office, I don't believe that is smart or fair or ethical leadership. Circle back, the legalization of adult use marijuana in the state of Arizona is a good idea. It will generate tax revenue. It will curtail our current incarceration crisis, and it's going to end up saving us millions of dollars a year. Did I hit all of the, the questions? There are a lot of embedded questions there. You did. Thank okay, you. Okay, good. Excellent. Let me turn to the issue of plea bargains, uh, which typically involve the prosecution agreeing to drop some charges or to support a lesser sentence in return for the defendant pleading guilty. In most legal systems today, nine out of every 10 cases ending in a conviction are the result of plea bargaining. Among others, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy has argued that plea bargaining is not some adjunct to the criminal justice system, it is the criminal justice system. Do you believe the prevalence of plea bargaining is a problem for today's criminal justice systems? How will you ensure that plea bargaining in your office is fair and justified? Justice Kennedy is right. Nationwide, we know about 95% of the cases in our criminal justice system are settled via plea bargaining. And in our county, there's a little bit of variability, but that number is closer to 1% of cases that actually proceed to trial. So when it comes to criminal justice, the core value should be that the, the punishment or the sentence, that it fits the crime. And there have been a multitude of policies that have been propagated from this office, like pleading to the leading charge. Uh, that have been overly punitive and that have bloated our carceral system and led to some serious longitudinal problems. So one of the things that we can do in this office is that we can change the culture of the office and bring prosecutors that are focused on justice, not just on the highest possible sentence when cases go to trial. I also believe that we can, we can engage in sentencing reform by intelligent charging. One of the things that happens in this office that I continue to hear from defense attorneys is the degree to which charges are stacked one on top of the other, making it increasingly difficult uh, to be able to navigate you know, what, a, what a trial would look like and whether or not a proposed punishment fits a crime. One of the additional issues that we see in a system like this is why folks plead. And I think that's very much tied to our cash bail system because we know that someone who is held in our jail is far more likely to plead to an offense. Last, I think it's important that we address mandatory minimums as part of this equation too, because I think 
the public views our criminal justice system as a defense attorney and a prosecutor, and they battle it out, and a judge makes a decision at the end of the day. And what mandatory minimums do is they remove so much of that judicial discretion and put it in the hands of the prosecutor. And they take that power and put it in the hands of the prosecutor incredibly early in the criminal justice process. So if we were to change some of these other factors, I think we're gonna end up with more cases headed to trial. And I think that's a good thing. The jury trial that we have in America is one of the cheap ways that we can check the power of the government and it should be used more often. Let's, uh, let's Sorry, I didn't mean to pop my soapbox on that one. God, I love jury trials. Everybody needs to be in jury trials. Let me pick up something that you just mentioned, um, the idea of mandatory minimum sentencing. Um, a, as, as you suggest, a mandatory minimum eliminates judicial discretion to impose a sentence below the minimum term set by statute. You have people who criticize mandatory minimum uh, minimums as rigid and inflexible, while others highlight the uniformity it produces. What is your position on mandatory minimum sentencing laws in general? Do you think that adopting something like a safety valve provision, which provides judges to discretion, the discretion to reduce a sentence below a statutory minimum under specified circumstances, do you think that type of approach would make things better or worse? Good question. As lawyers, we're trained to think critically and to examine all of the evidence as well as the circumstance of every case. So we should consider when we are looking at sentencing and we should be able to take that holistic approach for when a punishment fits a crime. So I have been in favor of ending mandatory minimums in Maricopa County. We can work with judges to give them discretion and to promote uniformity, but I think it ultimately comes down to the Arizona legislature taking action to help recodify our criminal justice system. And that would be something I would be an advocate for as county attorney. I believe that eliminating mandatory minimums will end up saving the government money and will give back that much needed discretion so that the sentence in each case is related to each case and not a one size fits all solution to crime. Let me continue with another question about uh, sentencing. Under current law in Arizona, almost all people in prison must serve at least 85% of their sentence. Do you support an expansion of so-called earned release credits, which might reduce an inmate's sentence based on good behavior in prison and success in pro-social programs? Of course, and this is a high priority. We should give folks who are interested in improving their lives incentives while they're incarcerated. We know that this aids rehabilitation. It gives folks more skills that are applicable upon release. It has been proven to decrease rates of recidivism and it will ultimately save taxpayer money in our criminal justice system. 100% we should be doing this. Recent times have, have seen a growing interest in the reentry of former inmates back into society. Uh, this process is sometimes blocked by a defendant's felony record, which shows up on background checks and can impede a former inmate's prospects for employment or their ability to obtain housing. With no expungement law in Arizona, would you support legislation that would allow people to clear their felony record, perhaps when the underlying offenses are nonviolent? Absolutely. And you are 100% right. Of course, when individuals have served their debt to society and have demonstrated change, they deserve a second chance. 
And when we block reentry into society in this way and don't give people the tools that they need to succeed, we see an increase in recidivism. I am committed to using this office to advocate to the Arizona legislature for smart policy changes to our legal system that reflect our shared values as Maricopa County residents and assisting in that reintegration of directly impacted people. I think it helps recognize their inherent dignity. It will save us money. And ultimately it's going to make our community stronger and safer. Many criminal justice systems are are filled with defendants suffering from substance use disorders and mental health disorders, which are often connected to the underlying charges. What can the county attorney's office do to deal with this pervasive problem of criminal justice? Good question, because it is the pervasive problem when you look at the magnitude of the cases that come through the county attorney's office. We see that the vast majority are individuals who are suffering from substance use disorder or mental health issues. And it is so important to me that we treat the root cause of the problem rather than using incarceration as that one size fits all approach. In my view, this means that we increase diversion programs, that we increase specialty courts that give wraparound service, and that we give folks the resources they need to recover and to get better. So one of the issues I'm especially concerned with when talking about uh, when talking to stakeholders are pre-adjudication felony veterans courts. We have uh, some veterans court systems already operating here in our state. They provide tailored rehabilitation and wraparound services for servicemen and service women as they readjust to civilian life. And they have a demonstrated record of success. So if we're able to address these root causes that lead to the involvement in the criminal justice system, I believe that we can alleviate some of these long-standing pervasive issues and actually be able to implement reform. Arizona law contains a, a variety of protections for the victims of crime. How will your office balance the concerns of crime victims with the demand to prosecute cases in service of the public interest? Yes. We have to treat victims of crime with both dignity and respect. And that is of the utmost importance to balance those concerns of crime victims with the demand to prosecute cases and be in service in the public interest. I believe that also means that we need to protect victims from unwanted attention. We need to protect them from harm. And one of the things that we can do better as a prosecutor's office is to have our priorities straight. So when so much of the time and attention in this office is devoted to primarily low-level drug offenses that are nonviolent, it sure seems to me that when we engage in reform, when we direct those folks out of the system, we're going to have more bandwidth for cases that are that involve victims. And I've worked those cases, and I know the expertise that it takes to, for example, prosecute a a child-on-child sexual assault. I can tell you that those cases take hours, they take weeks, they take months. And when the attention of the prosecutor's office is focused on those kinds of crimes, and we have our priorities straight, when we're focusing our attention on crimes of violence, crimes that target women, children, and our seniors, our prosecutors are going to have more bandwidth to uh, to give those victims the time and the attention that they deserve. Let me circle back to a topic that we discussed earlier. 
the law enforcement response to nationwide protests has raised questions about the appropriateness of arrests and prosecutions for offenses like disorderly conduct, interfering with a police officer, trespassing, and unlawful assembly. How would your office approach such cases, given the need to balance free speech rights and expressions of community sentiment with the need to maintain order and minimize the potential for violence and property damage? I unequivocally support the right of Arizonans to peacefully protest and to exercise their First Amendment rights. It is so critical to any well-developed democracy. However, uh, that does not give a carte blanche to individuals to do as they please with impunity and rioting and destruction of property are, are obviously not okay and face legal repercussions. My bigger concern is that we cannot allow law enforcement to chill free speech and we cannot allow the copy and paste charges that have been touted to promote efficiency in our criminal justice system. Every person in our criminal justice system has inalienable rights that we must respect. I have been listening to the protesters because I think their voices are valuable and they should be listened to. And I see that they are rooted in the big issues that we've been talking about in this race. They've been rooted in the longstanding racial inequities of this office. And it sure seems to me that parts of solving the ongoing civil unrest includes listening to these folks in our community, rectifying these structural programs, uh, dismantling systemic racism that's in our system, and then holding each other accountable. And I would like to see an approach that comes from law enforcement and this office that starts with acknowledging that those who are protesting for, for justice and equity, that their concerns are valid and that we should be taking action. Do you support the intervention of federal law enforcement in response to protests? Or is this an area exclusively or at least predominantly for state law enforcement, including potential prosecutions by the county attorney's office? You know, that's a, a really good question. And I think the answer is just a simple no, that in no other context do we include federal law enforcement in this particular way. And it sure seems to me that this is primarily a state issue that has been driven by state law enforcement and that it needs to be addressed right here in the state. Let me turn to uh, Amina, my colleague. Uh, I believe she has a question for you. I do, and it's, uh, it's a bit of a fun one. I noticed that John Legend has uh, basically posted on his social media, tweeted out his support of you, and that's a pretty huge deal. I'm wondering if you can comment on that and uh, how that came to be. <laughs> oh, I know his wife. I'm sorry. I <laughs> no, you know, that, I, ha I have got to be honest, that was a surprise to the campaign. We did not know that that was happening. We did not know that was coming. In fact, the way I found out about that was that my high school chemistry teacher tagged me in John Legend's post. So wow. I think it is, however, a testament to the kind of campaign that we're running. So the county attorney's office is the third largest prosecutor's office in the entire country just behind LA and Cook County, where I worked. 
So when we talk about criminal justice reform, Arizona has the potential to be a leader. And instead, we've engaged in 40 years of single party control and regressive policies. So I think that we're seeing that sort of national attention, especially from someone like John Legend, who has devoted part of his platform to some of these reform issues that we all care so much about. And he's been a phenomenal advocate alongside so many others. It was my great honor to see that. But no, 100% a surprise. Well, thank you for for talking about that a bit. I just had to mention it. Uh, It's just something that you see and you have to ask. (laughs) And I think you're right. You know, all eyes are on Arizona. So it's a pretty big time for Arizona. Um, I'll turn back to Eric uh, to conclude today's episode. Thank you, Amina. Uh, We've reached the the end of our time today. So I want to thank Julie Gunnigal for joining us today. Good luck in the upcoming election. Thank you so very much. Everyone who's listening, please get out and vote. If you are registered to vote by mail, the last day day to mail your ballot is 1027, and the election is sitting here at 54 days away. Thank you. I also want to thank the listeners of this podcast. If you want to learn more about the Academy for Justice, our research, and our events and activities, please check out our website and follow us on social media. And that concludes our podcast episode today. Thank you, Julie, for being here. Thank you, Eric. Uh, Thank you, everyone. Thanks to the Academy for Justice uh, for this incredible partnership. And here are to many more episodes in in the near future. And uh, that's it for today. 